0: I would invite you to turn in your Bibles to Deuteronomy chapter 17. Let me read verses 14 through 20, and then I'll pray and we'll get into the message this morning. Verse 14 says, when you enter the land the Lord your God has given you, take possession of it, live in it, and say, I will set a king over me like all the nations around me. You are to appoint over you the king the Lord your God chooses. Appoint a king from your brothers You are not to set a foreigner over you or one who is not of your people. However, he must not acquire acquire many horses for himself or send the people back to Egypt to acquire many horses. For the Lord has told you, you are never to go back that way again. He must not acquire, acquire many wives for himself so that his heart won't go astray. He must not acquire very large amounts of silver and gold for himself. When he is seated on his royal throne... He is to write a copy of this instruction for himself on a scroll in the presence of the Levitical priests. It is to remain with him and he is to read from it all the days of his life so that he may learn to fear the Lord his God, to observe all the words of this instruction and to do these statutes. Then his heart will not be exalted above his countrymen. He will not turn from this command to the right or the left and he and his sons will continue reigning. Many years in Israel. Would you pray with me as we consider this word this morning? Fathers, we come to your word desiring to know you, desiring to know how you relate to your people and what you, what you require of us. God, I pray that you would speak to us this morning through Deuteronomy 17 and, and through your word and guide us so that we might live lives that are productive in the right ways lives that count for eternity, lives that are not consumed by things that will fade and disappear, but lives that are focused on the things that you have given us to prioritize in our lives. In other words, make us more devoted followers of Jesus Christ this this day we ask in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, we've been going through the book of Deuteronomy, and we've kind of hit this, this, this part in the middle of Deuteronomy where... Moses is giving a lot of very specific instructions and commands, as you just saw. These are specific instructions pertaining to a very specific situation amongst a specific group of people. We are not Old Testament Israel. We are not going in to possess the land that they were going in to possess. We don't even have kings. And you'll find that throughout Deuteronomy. You'll see a lot of things, and you go, I don't really know how this applies to me, but the thing about this section of scripture is we can actually learn a lot about God, his character, what he's like, how he relates to his people, how he expects them to relate to him. And, and as we dig a little bit deeper, we also find some, some really strong connections to the New Testament teaching, which does directly apply to us as Christians. And so that's what I'll, I hope you'll discover today as, as we look at this seemingly obscure passage about selecting a king— To reign over Old Testament Israel, and I hope that you'll learn a lot about God and and how he relates to us and how he expects us to relate to him. So with that in mind, if you have the handout that we gave you on the way in, go ahead and get that out. We're going to fill in some blanks. The first point that you'll see there on the handout is this. God's promises are when, not If. God's promises are when, not if. One of the first things that sort of jumped out at me as I was looking at this passage is the way it begins. And there's actually a a couple of places in this section of Deuteronomy where it starts the same way. If we look at verse 14, it says, When you enter the land the Lord your God is giving you. When you go in, take possession of it, live in it, and decide it's time To appoint a king. Now that doesn't seem significant to us, but if we if we put ourselves in their shoes, here they are. They are descendants of slaves. This group of Israelites has never been a great nation. They have never never really made much of a name for themselves, and they weren't trained to fight battles. They They didn't have a standing army. They were literally. Descendants of slaves, most of them had lived their entire lives the last 40 years, just wandering in the wilderness, living off of God's miraculous provision. What in the world do they know about going in and defeating these seven nations that occupy this land? For them, they were looking at at the land just as their forefathers did, which is this is what got them in trouble and the reason they had to stay in the wilderness for 40 years, they're looking and they're seeing the same thing that their forefathers saw. They're like, these people are more numerous than us. They're more prepared to defend their land. They have fought in battles before. There there was every reason to doubt that they were actually going to go in and take this land. Except for one thing, God had promised them that they would take the land. And God's promises are not if. God's promises are not, you know, hey, this is kind of a gamble, guys. You're not really prepared to go in and fight these nations. I mean, they're going to, The chances are, they're going to whoop you. And, but just in case it works out, here's what you should do when you get into the land. That's not how God addresses them. He addresses them and he says, when this is done, when it has taken place, When you enter the land the Lord your God has given you, take possession of it, live in it, and say, I will set a king over me like all the nations around me. God has skipped over some really significant steps that the Israelites are going to have to take. This is a bold ambition to look at them where they're at And to presume that they're ever going to get to the place where they've entered the land, taken possession of it, live in it, and now are ready to set a king over them. Wouldn't have made any sense. It would have seemed foolish, but for the promise of God. That's like if you were to say, hey, you know, if you're sitting here and you're 20 years old and you got $250 in your bank account. And um, got a degree from uh, Westmoreland County Community College, or something to your name. And you're like, you know what I want to do with my life? I want to become the richest man in the world. And I want to buy Twitter from Elon Musk for $40 trillion. We'd be like, that's, it might happen, it's possible. But there's like a lot of things that need to happen between now and then. But you're like, no, it's happening. I already already know who I'm going to fire. I know who I'm going to hire. I know what rules. You've got this like plan. That's what's going on here. God is speaking to the Israelites and he's saying, when you are in the land, and they had to have been like, well, there's a lot of things that need to happen before we worry about that. Can we just focus on like winning the next battle? But the thing about when God promises something, it's when, not if. It's going to happen. His promises will be fulfilled. Now, we need to have a proper understanding of what his promises are and how they apply to us, because it's popular in certain sections of Christianity today, to take everything as a personal promise for God. We call this the prosperity gospel, where where people think that every individual Christian is promised perfect health and every individual Christian is promised wealth and success in their lives and that nothing bad will ever happen to them. That's not biblical Christianity. So we need to have a proper understanding of what his promises actually are. But once we do, we can rest assured that God's Promises are when, not if. So we see that in just the way God addresses Israel throughout these, these chapters in the middle of Deuteronomy. The next thing that you'll see on the handout is this. God chooses kings according to his purposes, and, and then he works through people to install them. He chooses kings according to his purposes, and works through people to install them. What I I want to try to point us to here is sort of a a bit of a mystery when it comes to Christianity because Christians for the last 2,000 years have been fighting over the relationship between God's sovereignty, meaning his complete control over his creation, and man's free will meaning his ability to make decisions that have real consequences. And there's a, there's a bit of a mysterious relationship between those two things that comes out here in Deuteronomy 17. Verse 15 says, you are to appoint a king over you. That sounds like man's free will. You are to do it. You are to appoint over you the king of the Lord your God chooses, that sounds like God's sovereignty. And I think what we have here is a great reminder that both of these things are true. God exercises complete control over his creation and he works through the willful, consequential decisions of mankind. And so he is sovereign and we are responsible are are two things that in, in, in God's mysterious creation actually work together to accomplish his purposes. He says, appoint a king from your brothers. You are not to set a foreigner over you or one who is not of your people. Well, if God's going to choose them, why give these instructions? If God's going to choose that king then why do they need to have these specific instructions? And it comes back to, he chooses, yet he works through people to install them. Romans 13 adds to this idea and says, let everyone submit to the governing authorities since there's no authority except from God and the, the authorities that exist are instituted by God. This is Paul in the Roman era Speaking to Christians living under Roman rule, which for all of our complaints about the way things are being handled from a government perspective in America, in our lifetime, this really pales in comparison to the way things were in the Roman Empire. And yet here's Paul saying, these these sometimes ungodly leaders, these these always corrupt, sort of fascist dictators that you know as leaders and governors, those come from God. Those are instituted by God to accomplish his purpose. He remains in control of who is in control. And yet, we have a responsibility to exercise our willful decision-making, our, our willful obedience to him to, to, to in, our, in, in our context, get out and vote. We, we have a responsibility to be responsible citizens and to vote for the candidates that we think will best lead this country according to God's priorities. Our, that's the responsibility and duty of Christians, we're to do that. We're not to throw up our hands and say, well, God's in control. It's going to be whatever he wants it to be because he has told us to go and to exercise our will and to do what we can to ensure that the people who rule over us are the best possible candidates that we can get. So we, there's a saying uh, in, in, among some Christians, you know, this whole idea of, there's two theological camps that sort of emphasize one or the other of these two sides of God's sovereignty or man's free will. Calvinism uh, emphasizes God's sovereignty. Arminianism emphasizes man's free will. And so there's a saying that says, work like an Arminian, meaning work like it all depends on you, but sleep like a Calvinist. Sleep like it all depends on God. And I would say that's that's a good application for us in, in our current situation. I'm not trying to apply this to, to people all over the world because different governments operate in different ways, but we ought to vote like Arminians. We have to vote like it depends on whether or not we go vote, and then we need to go to bed at night and sleep like Calvinists and know that God is in control. He chooses, and then he works through us, to install his leaders. And as much as this might feel uncomfortable to hear, oftentimes bad leaders in the Old Testament are explicitly stated to be a sign of God's judgment upon people. And so we need to accept God's will, good or bad, knowing that he is doing what he desires to do and what pleases him that's about as political as you're gonna hear me get up here. (laughs) Go vote and trust God. Believe that he's in control. Next thing you see in the handout that I want us to glean from from Deuteronomy 17, the king must not exploit the people for his own benefit. Now we wanna get into the character of the leader. God makes it clear that that uh, the king that is appointed is not being appointed so that his life can get dramatically better. And you have to understand that, you know, coming from a, at least in theory, a democracy, we, we, we sort of already held that ideal. We, we think that if this goes well, we elect leaders who are going to serve the people. We know it doesn't always work that way. I don't know if it ever works that way, but we know that's at least the idea, right? But here we are, you know, 3,000 years ago in the ancient Near East, this idea that a king came into position in order to serve the people under him may have been a completely brand new idea. It's possible that by God's grace, somebody else had presented this idea before, but almost without exception, we, we can point to evidence that to be a king in that culture meant you made it. Now everybody exists to serve you. You're going to receive their taxes. You're going to live your best life. You're going you're gonna to have everything that is available in your context at your disposal. That's what it meant to be a king. And it didn't matter how much the people under you suffered as long as you could subjugate them to your will, you would continue to do so until you were no longer king. That was it. Like, that's, that's what everybody did. Nobody was like, hey, what if, what if when I became king, I just, like, kept living at the same standard of living that I had before I was a king and sought the betterment of my country. They didn't do that. This is a completely foreign idea. Here's the instruction that God gives. Verse 16, however, he must not acquire many horses for himself or send the people back to Egypt to acquire many horses, for the Lord has told you you are never to go back that way again. So God has delivered the Israelites out of slavery in Egypt, and he has harshly punished Egypt, and he knows that the hearts of man are so wicked that men would actually be tempted, once they become king, to send people back to Egypt in the name of acquiring more horses for them. He would exploit the lives of the people under him for his own benefit then it says in verse 17 he must not acquire many wives for himself so that his heart won't go astray he must not acquire very large amounts of silver and gold for himself man god you're like taking all the fun out of being a king <laughs> and that's this is this is the relationship that god reveals that he wants his leaders to have with his people To be a leader in God's kingdom is to be a servant of the people that you lead. Of course, we're going to see no better example of this than Jesus. Let's jump to the New Testament for a moment. I want to look at two passages where Jesus addresses this with his disciples. Jesus, when he walked the earth, he chose 12 men to walk with him very closely, and he was preparing them for leadership, and he was teaching them how to lead in his kingdom. And one of the things that he has to address is this very worldly mindset of what it means to be a leader. This mindset that if I rise to the top, then that means everybody under me exists to serve my interests. This is how Jesus addresses this. In Mark chapter nine, it says, they came to Capernaum. When he was in the house, he asked them, what were you arguing about on the way? But they were silent, because on the way they had been arguing with one another about who was the greatest. Sitting down, he called the twelve and said to them, if anyone wants to be first, he must be last and servant of all. Then he took a child, had him stand among them, and taking him in his arms, he said to them, whoever welcomes one little child such as this in my name welcomes me. And whoever welcomes me does not welcome me, but him who sent me. So you've got these disciples, these men, walking with Jesus, arguing over who's the greatest. And they know this is wrong, because when Jesus says, hey guys, when we were heading over here, what were you talking about? Nobody wants to say a word. And he says, well, just so you know, if anyone wants to be first, he must be last and servant of all. And then to make sure they get the point, he takes the least influential human being that he can find, a child, who in their eyes had nothing to offer them. There's no reason to welcome a child because you gain nothing from it. You want to welcome influential people. You want to be seen with the big dogs, with the, with the people of power and of influence, because if you welcome them, then you must be something. Oh, man, you're, you're hanging out with so-and-so, or you, I saw you the other day with, with, with you-know-who, and, and wow, I didn't know you were there. I didn't know you were up there. Jesus says, in my kingdom, whoever welcomes this little one, in my name, he welcomes me. Not only does he welcome me, but he welcomes him who sent me. He totally reverses the way they are thinking about greatness, the way they are thinking about what it means to be a leader. Then he does something similar in Mark chapter 10. We have a, we have a similar scene. In Mark chapter 10, verse 35, it says, James and John, the sons of Zebedee, approached him and said, Teacher, we want you to do whatever we ask. Bad start, by the way. We, what, what do you want me to do for you, he asked them. They said, allow us to sit at your right and your left in your glory. Now, Jesus is becoming influential. They're, they're, they're on their way to Jerusalem, if I remember correctly, the setting here. And they're, they expect that Jesus is going to become king. And they want to solidify their place in his administration. If Jesus is going to become king, that means somebody's going to be second in command, and somebody's going to be third in command. And so they, go to, they, they get together and they say, "You know what? instead of fighting over who's going to be second, why don't we ask him to put us both one, side, one on one side and one on the other side?" And they request Jesus' commitment basically to become the greatest in his kingdom next to him. Jesus said to them, you don't know what you are asking. Are you able to drink the cup I drink or be baptized with the baptism I am baptized with? We are able, they told him. Jesus said to them, you will drink the cup I drink and you will be baptized with the baptism I am baptized with. But to sit at my right or left is not mine to give. Instead, it is for those for whom it has been prepared. When the 10 disciples heard this, they began to be indignant with James and John. Jesus called them over and said to them, you know that those who are regarded as rulers of the Gentiles lord it over them. He's saying those who, who have leadership position in the world and those in high positions act as tyrants over them but it is not so among you. On the contrary, whoever wants to become great among you will be your servant, and whoever wants to be first among you will be a slave to all. For even the Son of Man, which is a name that Jesus uses to refer to himself, for even the Son of Man did not come to be served, but to serve and to give his life as a ransom for many. Jesus is being explicitly clear that you know how people lead in this world, like it's just it's it's what everybody does. Le- the, the more influence you gain, the more comfort you expect. The more you expect people to sort of serve your needs. And he's saying, "Don't bring that into my kingdom. That's not how it's going to be here. In my kingdom, the last will be first, the first will be last, the greatest." serve the least, because the greatest, the son of man, he came not to be served, but to serve. That's the way it should be in the church. It should be that that those among us who are given opportunity to lead recognize that leadership in the kingdom is a call to servanthood. Leadership in God's house is a call to humble yourself and to seek the best of those whom you've been called to serve. That's, that's the principle that God is instituting back in Deuteronomy 17. He says, this is what a king is supposed to be like now. Israel, just like with so many other things commanded in Deuteronomy, will fail miserably at this. Their kings will look much more like the kings of the nations around them than what God described or prescribed for them here in Deuteronomy 17. Yet this is is God's heart. This is the way he views leadership in his kingdom. Next, we got two more. Let me get through these fairly quickly here. The next thing on the handout is this. The king must devote his heart to knowing and following the Lord. So this kind of goes hand in hand with this attitude of servanthood, But it's not just to serve the people that you become king over, but it's to serve the God who who you have been installed to represent. So the king must devote his heart to knowing and following the Lord. This is the way the instruction comes in verse 18. When he is seated on his royal throne, he is to write a copy of this instruction for himself on a scroll in the presence of the Levitical priests. The instruction is probably not just this passage from Deuteronomy 17. It's, it's, it's likely that Moses meant the entire book of Deuteronomy or perhaps the entire first five books of the Old Testament. But he was to write God's instruction for his people. Handwrite it himself. Remember in, in grade school, when the bad kids had to get up and they had to write on the board again and again, I will not talk when the teacher is talking or I will not flick the ear of the person or whatever. And they had to write it again and again and again. That was a learning device so that so that, they, that, that command or that rule would become imprinted in their hearts and minds. And that's the principle that God is applying here. The, the king is to hand write out this law. He wants him to know it, and it is to remain with him, verse 19, and he is to read from it all the days of his life so that he may learn to fear the Lord his God, to observe all the words of this instruction, and to do these statutes. Then his heart will not be exalted above his countrymen, he will not turn from this command to the right or to the left, and he and his sons will continue reigning many years in Israel the heart of the leader is going to set the tone for the whole nation. His commitment to the Lord and his desire to follow the Lord is going to have more influence over the people of Israel than any other single person's heart. And so it is imperative that he devotes his heart to knowing and following the Lord. He's gotta set the pace. And the same is true of us in our circles of influence. Most of us won't be kings, but all of us will have influence over people in our lives. All of us. No matter who you are, no matter what position you are in in life, and no matter what your circle of friends, uh, looks like you have influence over people in your life. And that influence is either going to cause them to know and follow the Lord, or it's going to cause them to go the other direction. Your influence on other people in your life will never be neutral, it will never, you will, you will never be just a, a totally impartial influence on the people around you. You're always influencing them in one direction or the other. Which direction do you want to influence them in? So God has this vision for the king to write out the commands, to know them by heart, to keep that scroll with him, to remind himself, this is how I am to lead. I am to know and I am to follow the Lord so that those around me will do the same. Now, let me pause real quick. We have some folks getting baptized today, and I know they need to go and get ready for baptism. And so if you're getting baptized today, I want to encourage you to slip out and get prepared for baptism because that'll be in just a few minutes. All right, uh, the last thing on the handout, the last point, and this one, this one is, doesn't come from Deuteronomy 17, but it's something that Deuteronomy 17 should remind all of us of, and that is we have a better king we have a better king. For hundreds of years, God was going to install human kings to lead his people. And as I already mentioned, most of those men will fail miserably to do so well. Some of them will do okay. David is, is, is probably the best example of a king who, who knew and followed the Lord and encouraged others to do so. But even in David's life, we have just some Horrific failures. There are some things that even the best king of Israel did that were just devastating to the people around him. But the good news is we have one who is, whose righteousness, whose justice, whose humility, whose humble leadership, servanthood leadership, far surpasses any human king. We have a better king. Let me read to you Revelation 19, one of my favorite passages about Jesus' kingship because it speaks so clearly to his just and righteous nature. In Revelation 19, verse 11, it says, Then I saw heaven opened, and there was a white horse, and its rider is called... Faithful and true. And with justice he judges and makes war. His eyes were like a fiery flame, and many crowns were on his head. And he had a name written that no one knows except himself. He wore a robe dipped in blood, and his name is called the Word of God. The armies that were in heaven followed him on white horses, wearing pure white linen. A sharp sword came from his mouth so that he might strike the nations with it. He will rule them with an iron rod. He will also trample the winepress of the fierce anger of God the Almighty, and he has a name written on his robe and on his thigh, King of kings, Lord of lords. Jesus as king is going to completely extinguish every trace of injustice and unrighteousness that now afflicts his people. And he is going to establish a kingdom where people can perfectly flourish and live the way that God created us to live. And he's going to take those who are saved by his sacrifice on the cross, and he's going to make us righteous. And he's going to remove the sinfulness from our hearts. And he's going to cause us to be filled with a love that enables us to perfectly love one another and to perfectly love our God. It's going to be an amazing kingdom. And you're invited. He welcomes you to come and be a part of his kingdom. That's what a great king he is. The Bible Bible says that he even invites his enemy. And when you stop and think about who his enemies are and when you look inside and you realize that you yourself and I myself have not kept his commands, I have not lived according to his statutes and his rules, I realize I'm his enemy. I'm the one who has waged war with my life against his will. That sounds dramatic, until God opens your eyes to see that that is completely true. But the good news is that he came and he died for his enemies. He invites them to come and live with him forever in his eternal kingdom. And we can come into that kingdom by placing our faith and our trust in what Jesus did on the cross. And what Jesus did on the cross is he came to earth 2,000 years ago And after he had lived a life of perfect righteousness, he died a sinner's death that he did not deserve because he wanted to die for your sins, not his. He had no sin to die for. But he died so that you could be forgiven and so that you could be a part of his kingdom. And now you have a choice to make. We all have a choice to make. Philippians 2 says, For this reason God highly exalted him, and gave him the name that is above every name so that at the name of Jesus every knee will bow in heaven and on earth and under the earth and every tongue will confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. What Philippians 2 is telling us that one day you will confess that Jesus is Lord. When you choose to do that determines whether or not you will be in his kingdom. Those who confess and bow their knee on earth, which means this life that we are in now will be a part of his kingdom. Those who choose to refuse that invitation will still confess, but they'll confess on the day of judgment when no salvation will be offered. And so now he offers you eternal life.